the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Calcine Report, number 94, June 1973. One of the byproducts of the ecology movement is a slogan which often appears as a bumper sticker, quote, fight smog, get a horse, unquote. Supposedly, horses provided a cleaner atmosphere than automobiles do. Behind that assumption lies some very interesting philosophical and religious beliefs. However, before commenting on them, let us look first at the day of the horse. Joel A. Tarr in, quote, Urban Pollution Many Long Years Ago, unquote, American Heritage, October 1971, Volume 22, Number 6, gives a vivid picture of how much pollution horses created. Milwaukee, in 1907, had a population of 350,000 people and a horse population of 12,500. It had a daily problem of 133 tons of manure. It should be noted that every city, apart from its own horses, had a daily influx of wagons and teams from farms with produce and from small towns nearby, so that all times, and especially in the early 1800s, the horses which daily entered a city were very numerous. In 1908, when New York's population was 4,777,000, it had 120,000 horses. Chicago, in 1900, had 83,330 horses. Remember, too, that by this time the streetcar and some automobiles had alleviated the need for horses to a great degree. There were, however still three and a half million horses in American cities and 17 million in the countryside. Consider the implications of this. In the winter or spring, the manure turned to slush, and it meant walking and slipping and falling into liquidified manure in bad weather. Americans then were not as calm and sedate as romantics would believe. The weather then led to more bad tempers than we can imagine today. What the well-dressed man and woman said on being splattered by liquefied manure by a passing carriage or on slipping and falling into the foul slush is best left to the imagination. It was not a pretty picture. Summer weather did not improve matters. The summer sun dried the manure and the carriage and wagon wheel soon turned into a floating dust to be breathed by all and to coat clothing and furniture with a foul covering. People complained about breathing, quote, pulverized horse dung, unquote, 
and a summer breeze was a disaster. Summer rains only brought back a manure mush. The windblown particles were a reservoir for disease spores such as tetanus. Because of a variety of other forms of pollution, in those days epidemics of cholera, dysentery, infant diarrhea, smallpox, yellow fever, and typhoid were common. The manure, of course, bred flies by the billions, and they were everywhere. It was impossible to keep swarms of flies out of the houses, and the common gesture at the dinner table was to keep waving your free hand to keep the flies off the food. The sparrows were also a major problem. They fed on the grain particles in the manure and they multiplied astronomically. A very common complaint in those days was the sparrow problem. Sparrows could make it difficult to sit under the shade of that old apple tree and housewives found that their clothes on the clothesline often bore evidences of sparrow droppings. But this is not all. Freighters, junk men, delivery men, and cabbies were commonly brutal in their treatment of horses. This led to the founding in 1866 of the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. In spite of their efforts, men still killed an animal which dropped in its tracks or broke a leg and left him dead on the city street. In 1880, there were 15,000 dead horses left on New York streets. As late as 1912, Chicago had 10,000 dead horses left on its streets, although by then streetcars and automobiles were lessening the horse population. One of the first things that happened to a dead horse, before any disposal agency could get to it, was that dogs, by nature scavengers, were quickly busy tearing it to shreds and carting hunks of meat into nooks and alleys. Much more can be said. For example, the noise pollution was very great. Iron horseshoes on cobblestone pavements, four shoes to a horse, and sometimes two and four horses to a wagon, made a tremendous racket, night and day. Automobiles and trucks are silent by comparison. The noise also involved the shouts and profanity of teamsters trying to get the maximum effort out of their overworked animals. But we have barely touched the surface of urban population. Cooking and heating by wood and coal stoves meant that winter and summer, coal soot was a part of urban life. In heating with coal, faulty flues often led to carbon monoxide poisoning. In 1902, Emile Zola lost his life in France through charcoal fumes. Faulty flues often led to serious fires. On winter days, the balls of greasy soot would form and drift in the wind and on the streets. With smog at its worst, cities are today far cleaner. With coal as fuel, housewives could not allow curtains to go unwashed more than six weeks. They would disintegrate if not washed very regularly. This meant, too, that painted walls were regularly washed down by tidy housewives as a routine in house cleaning. Housewives aged more rapidly in those days, not because they did not know how to take care of themselves, but because severe pollution and constant heavy work in combating it aged them rapidly. Remember, too, that without the automobile, urban sprawl was not nearly as possible then as now, and cities were more compact and concentrated. This meant that every form of pollution was also more concentrated and had a corresponding effect on city dwellers. Other forms of pollution then common can be cited, 
but the picture is by now clear. The coming of the 20th century technology and the automobile did not increase pollution. Rather, it helped limit it severely. Bad as smog is, a very strong case exists for the very important fact that the air over cities is now definitely cleaner. Moreover, more power to the agencies of civil government is not the answer. The worst pollution today is probably in the Soviet Union. See Marshall I. Goldman, The Spoils of Progress, Environmental Pollution in the Soviet Union, Cambridge, Massachusetts, the MIT Press, 1972. Most pollution today is created by status agencies, or as Dr. Hans Sinholtz has shown in a recent study in the Freeman Foundation for Economic Education, Irvington, New York, by those sectors of industry which have some form of status subsidy. People, however, are very ready to believe that technology and progress are responsible for pollution. In fact, with very many, it is a truism that progress means pollution, and the only way to restore the earth is to return to a more primitive way of life. So-called primitive man was and is a great polluter. One reason why such, quote, primitive, unquote, tribes have not done more damage to the earth is that their way of life leads to so much pollution and disease that it limits their population, and their ability to damage is thereby restricted. Many such tribes would set grass and forest fires in order to drive game to them. This was common among some American Indian tribes. Others would spread nets across a river to trap all spawning fish. A tribe would stay in one place until all the fish and game were too scarce, or until it was too filthy from human pollution to be tolerable and then move on. This myth of, quote, primitive, unquote, man as a conserver is a part of a broader myth which is so deeply rooted in the very unhealthy and twisted aspects of the ecology movement. The roots are in Rousseau and Rousseau's idealization of, quote, primitive, unquote, natural man as against civilized and Christian man. Rousseau's thesis was essentially this, as he himself described it, quote, man is by nature good, and only our institutions made him bad, unquote. The way to the future was for Rousseau a return to man's barbaric and primitive past. Last month, a woman interviewed on television described in glowing terms her visit to a backward tribe. One of the most, quote, wonderful, unquote, things about them was their total disregard for time. She found it, quote, beautiful, unquote, that someone who promises to do something tomorrow morning might decide to do it only days later. The woman conducting the interview also rhapsodized over this and declared that we are all too much ruled by the clock and how wonderful it would be if we could all get rid of living by the clock. This, of course, is pure Rousseau. Rousseau gave away his watch and declared that time-watching was an evil manifestation of civilization and a mark of decadence. Civilization, the church, private property, technology, as much as then existed, and much more were all damned by Rousseau as aspects of degeneracy. Man's hope was in a return to primitivism, to a golden age of unspoiled, non-Christian man. The philosophy of Rousseau meant thus a negation of Christian civilization. It meant 
to use Methvin's apt phrase, the development of, quote, the technology of social demolition, unquote. Eugene H. Methvin, The Rise of Radicalism, page 99, New Rochelle, New York, Arlington House, 1973. It meant also the birth of revolution as man's hope of salvation, of salvation by mass destruction. The philosophy of Rousseau is basic to modern education, politics, and religion. It means that the modern world pins its hopes on destruction, and it has a hatred of progress and civilization of technology, religious, and philosophical principle. The more deeply all these agencies succeed, the more deeply suicidal destruction becomes a way of life. Increasingly, militant sons of Rousseau work to bring technology to a halt out of a radical hatred of technology and progress. A gasoline shortage is developing in the U.S. because no new refineries can be built due to opposition on the grounds of a Rousseau-inspired ecology movement. New oil fields cannot be developed for the same reason, and so on and on. Add to this status controls which are restricting industry, and the picture is one of a man-created crisis caused by a serious shortage of common sense. In a very important book, Out of Revolution, Eugene Rosenstock Husey, New York, William Morrow, 1938, pointed out that the basic movement of the modern world is from Christ to Adam, from redeemed and supernatural man to natural man, from Christian civilization to an anti-Christian world. Gauthier's formulation of this new gospel was to the point, quote, Allah need create no longer. We instead create his world, unquote. As Rosenstock Husey observed, the word, quote, creation, unquote, was transferred from God to the man of genius. The new world imagined by the followers of Rousseau is the world of post-historical man because primitives know no history. Quote, books like James Henry Breasted, Dawn of Conscience, with its order for an age preceding the despicable age of Revelation, or like Fraser's Golden Bow, paved the road for an age when Jerusalem, Athens, and Rome can be eradicated from our children's textbooks and where the life of Indians, Negroes, Egyptians, Sumerians, Teutons, and Celts will seem much more attractive than the so-called classics of Greece and Rome. Unquote. Page 118. The hero of James Joyce's Ulysses says, quote, History is the nightmare from which I will awake. Unquote. To say that we are developing a post-Christian civilization is absurd. It misses the whole point of the revolution of our times. What humanistic men are trying to do is to destroy Christianity and civilization, not to create a new civilization. Seidenberg's post-historical man is also post-civilization man, man beyond and without civilization. This dream is both insane and impossible because it reckons without God, but it is no less destructive. There can be no compromise with it, no catering to it, and no collaborating with it. If you are busy bemoaning or apologizing for technology and the machine, either wake up or get over into the ranks of the barbarians and leave all your clothes behind as you go. 
If you are logical and true to your faith, you will not need them. They interfere with your, quote, natural, unquote, environment. Take your picket signs with you as you go. You may need them for firewood when your bare butt gets cold, if you believe in fire, that is. Meanwhile, the rest of us had better realize that it is Christian civilization that we must reconstruct, one systematically and faithfully established on biblical premises. We must have a healthy regard for the world God has given us and for the things He has given us the power to develop and to use in the exercise of our dominion under God. We do not despise the, quote, primitive, unquote, or the past, and we recognize that what we have developed today is, quote, primitive, unquote, compared to what is to come. We owe much to the men of the last century and their horse-drawn carriages, but respect for their accomplishments requires that we build further in terms of them. Remember at all times that God, who made all things, has also ordained all things in terms of His sovereign will. The future belongs not to the sons of Rousseau and their, quote, technology of social demolition, unquote, but to God and to the people of God. We must remind ourselves, as courageous men of past ages have done, that the results are in the hands of God, but the duties are ours. It is time we met them. Chalcedon Report number 95, July 1973 When Colin M. Turnbull's The Mountain People, New York, Simon & Schuster, 1972, was first published a year ago, at least one reviewer felt that the book should not have been written, and more than a few were disturbed. None came to grips with the book's central point. Turnbull, in spite of himself, has written an epitaph on humanism. Turnbull is, by no stretch of the imagination, Christian. He tries to derive a humanistic moral from his experience as an anthropologist among the Ik people in Africa. He says, in fact, quote, Although the experience was far from pleasant and involved both physical and mental suffering, I am grateful for it. In spite of it all, and contrary to the first tidal wave of disillusionment, it has added to my respect for humanity and my hope that we who have been civilized into such empty beliefs as the essential beauty and goodness of humanity may discover ourselves before it is too late, unquote page 12. His book tells a different story. The Ik are a small group of Africans in the mountains between Uganda, the Sudan, and Kenya. They were moved out of their homes when a national games reserve was created into a barren area. In this new area, they now live without their old faith and tradition. They are a, quote, modern, unquote, people. An example, rootless, without any ties to the past or the future. They are truly, quote, existential, unquote, in their outlook. The result is a world of total isolation, total egoism, and a radical immoralism. The family has ceased to exist. Turnbull, an honest reporter, saw no evidence of family life, no affection, no tears of sorrow, nothing except the rule of, quote, the immediate moment and with relation to one standard value, the good of self, unquote. Page 129. The mother, quote, throws her child out at three years old, unquote. 
The child must then provide for itself or die. This means eating what the baboons leave, berries, bark, grub, insects, and the like. Page 133, double F. Turnbull speaks of, quote, the almost universal practice of adultery, unquote. Page 181. Marriage is losing all appeal. Since either marriage or fornication requires some kind of gift to the girl, young men have come to believe it is cheaper and simpler to masturbate. Page 258. The girls sell themselves to outsiders. The ick have, however, attained the goal of modern libertarians. Theirs is a society without any coercion and also without either law or responsibility. Turnbull, as a liberal and an anthropologist, approves of this, stating, quote, The ick, however, have learned to do without coercion, either spiritual or physical. It seems that they have come to a recognition of what they accept as man's basic selfishness, his natural determination to survive as an individual before all else. This they consider to be man's basic right, and at least they have the decency to allow others to pursue that right to the best of their ability without recrimination and blame. Unquote. Page 182. Turnbull is not quite accurate, however. Where food is concerned, coercion exists. The ick can and do steal food out of the very mouths of infirm parents, and they regard it as a joke to do so, as hilarious fun. The weak are ridiculed, tormented, and cast out to die. There is no sense of any moral responsibility to one another. Quote, it was rather commonplace during the second year's drought to see the very young prying open the mouths of the very old and pulling out food they had been chewing and had not had time to swallow. Unquote. Page 261. As a humanist, Turnbull reacted both with horror to what he saw by trying to preserve life and other health, and also with intellectual assent. He had no moral grounds to condemn what the ick did. Quote, I wonder if their way was not right. Unquote. Page 228. When a good harvest came, ick life did not improve. When welfareism by the state came to the ick's aid, they did not improve. It only heightened their isolation and egoism, their anarchism. Quote, if they had been mean and greedy and selfish before, with nothing to be mean and greedy and selfish over, now that they had something, they really excelled themselves in what would be an insult to animals to call bestiality. Unquote. Page 280. The degeneration of society became even greater. Quote, the surface looked bad enough, the hunger could be seen and the trickery perceived, and the political games were well enough known, but one had to live among the ick and see them day in and day out, and watch them defecating on each other's doorsteps and taking food out of each other's mouths and vomiting so as to finish what belonged to the starving, to begin to know what had happened to them. Unquote. Page 283. The point which concerns Turnbull is the ick in all of us. Modern culture has abandoned its ancient religious faith which bound man to God and man to man. The ick have developed the implications of no faith more logically than the rest of the world. 
Modern man looks to the state. The ick looks only to himself for answers. The ick have become parasites through welfareism. Apart from that, they were still radically contemptuous of all standards and law other than the will of the individual. The moral values we have historically prized turned out to be. Turnbull sees, not a part of human nature at all, nor is man, quote, the social animal, unquote. Scholars have deemed him to be. The ick have abandoned morality and religion, and they have renounced society as well for survival, quote, values, unquote, alone. For them, it is enough to survive and to have your own way. According to Turnbull, quote, The ick teaches us that our much-vaunted human values are not inherent in humanity at all, but are associated only with a particular form of survival called society, and that all, even society itself, are luxuries that can be dispensed with, unquote. Page 27. This latter point is of special importance. The humanist has long held that moral values are, quote, inherent in humanity, unquote, itself. And now humanistic anthropology has itself denied the validity of this faith. Man is not the source of moral law and order. God is. Law and value are inherent in God. They are aspects of His being. God does not do or conform to values. He is Himself, the sum total of all values, and that they are simply manifestations of His nature. Man is required to conform to God's law apart from God. Man is lawless and valueless, and that he can only affirm, as do the existentialists, his own being. In such a world without God, as Sartre rightly recognized, man has being, he is, but not essence. In example, man has no pre-established nature, law, or standards. Man must then become his own God in order to establish any values, and this quest, as Sartre concluded in Being and Nothingness, 1959, is a futile one. In the humanistic worldview, the Ics are the best existentialists of all, and we are all destined to become Ics. The Marquis de Sade saw and welcomed this almost two centuries ago. Quote, the Ick and all of us, unquote, is a matter of growing concern. In the prologue to The Mugging, New York, Signet Books, 1972, Martin Hunt writes of the rapid growth of crimes of violence against persons. Their growth has changed the nature of American life and life within the cities in much of the world. The result is, as Hunt points out, a very real threat to civilization. Quote, for when unpredictable violent attacks upon one's person become an ever-present and uncontrollable danger, the great mass of citizens lose their faith in the integrity and viability of their society. They cease seeing themselves as members of a cooperating community of fellow creatures and no longer come to each other's aid or band together to seek broad solutions to the problem but look individually for some private modus vivendi, some form of survival through retreat or escape. With this loss of belief and this erosion of the spirit of communality goes society's only change of survival, unquote. Page 8. 
Hunt's point deserves more attention on all sides. Both liberals and conservatives have persisted in failing to see the issue. Radicals and liberals want to change man by rearranging society. They fail to see that society is a social product, an expression of the faith and character of a people. Experiments in new housing in slum areas have shown that the changed environment is speedily reduced to the level of the people in it. The fallacy of radicals and liberals is to see sin in the environment rather than in man. The non-Christian conservative's answer is similar. He sees the need as, quote, law and order, unquote. Law and order are profoundly important and necessary, but they cannot supply faith and character. When the number of lawbreakers in a society and the number of disbelievers in the religious foundations of a society reach a level of determinance, then the society will be governed by its unbelief and its lawlessness, not by its past faith. No law and order crusade today can restore what only biblical faith can give. It is suicidal to look for law and order, the fruit of the tree of biblical faith, and to reject the tree itself. Thus the answers proposed by both the left and the right are no answers at all. They are a part of the problem. The beatniks, the hippies, the dropouts, the careless parents, the faithless churches, the humanistic schools, the people, these are the ick in our midst. In talking today to a young man who works at an open all-night store from midnight to eight in the morning, I learned that a great majority of customers are teenagers, many just barely teens. Many of these are on narcotics. This is in a good suburban neighborhood with a high percentage of engineers and research men in the sciences. The key question is, why do these parents permit their 14-year-old sons to drift around all night? Summer vacation is not excuse enough. For some of these boys, drifting is, quote, better than being home, unquote, which is the worst alternative. The radical rot in the parents is the most appalling fact. There are only limited number of icks in the mountains of Africa, there are millions throughout the West of the world. More than a few scholars are fearful that the world will soon belong to the Ics. We can be grateful to Turnbull and the Ics for spelling out so plainly the collapse of humanism. The death of humanism will be the triumph, however, of the ultimate barbarian, the sophisticated existentialist Ick, unless we work for the reconstruction of faith and society. Godly reconstruction must thus be the order of the day, the rethinking of every area of life and thought in terms of biblical faith. This is the function of Chalcedon and the studies we are sponsoring at present. The collapse of values apart from that faith has been inevitable. Only by reconstruction in terms of the foundations of that faith is any ongoing civilization possible. The implicit humanism and all other cultures is carrying them down the road of the Ics. In terms of godly reconstruction, the future is a most promising one. The progressive failure of laws and controls to solve man's economic, cultural, and political crisis only underscore the failure of humanism and its age of the state. The times are strongly clouded with threats and storms, and disasters are clearly ahead worldwide in their scope as never before. 
These future events also mean the collapse of the statist hope and the humanistic world of values. They offer the promise, if we but use the opportunity and build in terms of our faith, of a more free society and a richer one. This is a time of unequaled opportunity, the greatest age of the frontier man has yet seen. The new frontier is the challenge of a new civilization, of the most sophisticated and intensive pioneering the world has yet seen. It is a time of times and an exciting time to be alive, a time to build and a time for advance. To be most alive is to be alive when and where it counts most. And this is the day. Get with it. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he assures by his paying the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me.
Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.